we have a, uh, a pretty serious problem uh, in our culture today. And it's bothered me lately as I've thought about it. Uh, it's nothing new. It's been around forever, but it seems to have taken uh, a new foothold, if you will. Maybe it's, it's been reinvigorated as, as of recently, you know, the last few years, or at least that's the way it feels to me. And the problem is that it's a big enough problem that it actually blinds us to the real problem. It blinds us to the truth. And it's become so pervasive in so many ways. And so uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, just in my Bible reading plan, I was reading in, in the Gospel of Luke. In uh, Luke chapter 18, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 18 of a, of a Pharisee and a tax collector both going into the temple and praying. Maybe you know this story. It's a really short story. Uh, Jesus tells it, and he says, the Pharisee comes in and prays, uh, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, these extortioners and unjust and adulterers, and, and even like this tax collector. And so Jesus says, as he's praying this, there's a tax collector down a ways from him also praying. And he says, but the tax collector doesn't raise his head and doesn't speak out, and he's just beating his chest, and he's looking down, and he won't look up, and he's just saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus tells this story, and he says that the, the tax collector went home justified. And, and I was thinking about just this story in our culture and our world right now, because the truth is our world is full of Pharisees, overwhelmingly so, full of Pharisees. Thank God I'm not like that person over there. And as I say that, the world is full of Pharisees. We're all Pharisees at different times. We all do it. We all like to put things into neat categories, and, and this is the really bad people over here, and these are the ones that got it together, and I'm with the ones that got it together, and thank God I'm not like those people. And sometimes we do it unknowingly. Sometimes we kind of slip into it. Sometimes it's subconsciously. And we start to kind of puff out our chest about how we seem to have things together. But what's happened in our, our society and our culture right now is everything has become extremes. Everything gets divided out into to two camps and everything's a far extreme. And there's, there's no nuance and it's, it's they're the wrong ones and they're the evil ones and they're the bad ones. And so what we see is we see it all over. Pharisees everywhere. Everywhere you look, you see it in the political divide. Both sides say the other side's awful and horrible and shouldn't be talked to, talked about or listened to. Um, we've adopted this thing in our culture. Uh, it's become pretty widespread, this idea of cancel culture. If you ever said anything bad, we'll never listen to you again. And so if you say something, it doesn't matter if you said it 25 years ago, you're done. We will not listen to you anymore. Thank God I'm not like that guy that said that thing and so I'll no longer listen to them. And it's everywhere. And it's all around us. And it's bad, and it's ugly, and it's rampant, and it's a lie. Also in Luke 18, a young guy comes up to Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus turns and says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And he kind of cuts that off right when this guy starts to say, now, Jesus is God and the flesh, and he's going to say some important things to this young man. But he immediately says, uh, cuts off this idea that, thank God I'm not like those other people. You are like those other people. We're all like those other people. None of us is good in and of ourselves. And the Bible tells us this 
over and over. And so when we fall into that kind of loop of I've got it all figured out and I'm thankful I'm not like those people, we miss a huge, huge piece. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying uh, that truth is relative. I'm not saying there's nothing to figure out and there's no truth. That's also a lie. Truth by definition can't be uh, you have your truth and I have my truth. Truth is truth. And it still holds in that. But when we take and we become this Pharisee that looks down on everyone else, we're not saying ourselves rightly. We're not saying God rightly. We're not saying our neighbors as they are. And it perpetuates all sorts of problems. You know, we live uh, in a world of, of complex issues. I found myself, and I may have mentioned this before, but I found myself in the last year saying uh, it's more complicated than that. A lot. As people want to make everything, no, 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 it's this and those people are the problem. Thank God I'm not like them. Uh, it's maybe a little more complicated than that. I, I know believers that hold uh, to faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the, the very core doctrines that we hold to of who we are in Jesus. And I know two friends that, that hold to those things and see different issues differently. But we want to make it this straw man. It's either this or it's this. And so that's everywhere in our culture. And we struggle with it on all sides. And so it's, it's nothing new. It's not a new problem. It's an age-old problem. But we could summarize it as it's one of self-righteousness. I've figured it out, and I'm smarter, and I've got it together. And when we do that, we miss who God is in the way he responds to us. When we start to slip into that, thank God I'm not like other men. So what's the answer to that? How do we get out of that? What's the way forward in a world that's been overtaken with this? The answer is we let God's word stand over us. We let his word inform the way we see these things. And so in order to do that, we have to take seriously God's word. We have to be engaged with his word, with our hearts and our minds. We have to be thinking as we come to it. We have to humble ourselves to God's word. Uh, one of the things that I see so many of these issues come to play because we like to take God's word and proof text. We take little pieces here and little pieces here and aha, it proves my point and so they're the bad people and I'm the right one. But when we do that, we skip parts and we misuse it and we distort it and we don't take seriously what God has said and let it standing over us. And it's hard. It's hard because we live in a culture now where everything is snippets. Everything's sound bites, tweets, they're really short. And if you can't fit it into this, I don't want to hear it. But that's not the way God's word is. And so God tells us, actually, Jesus says, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm always struck that he includes mind in that. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul says almost the exact same thing in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I mean, think about just the way he says that. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be sucked in to the thinking and the mess of our world. Be, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind continuing to test and discern what is the will of God and coming back to what God says and letting that stand over us in all things. And so we may need to engage deeply with the way God has revealed himself to us. 
We need to let his word stand over us in all things. And as we do, what happens is it makes our foundation stronger. It helps guard us against being conformed to the world because we let God's word stand over us. Instead of letting the things that flood in, it rescues us from those lies that end up conforming us to the world. And so we come back to God's word over and over. It also helps prepare us for the inevitable difficulties of this life. So I was thinking about that, just loving God with your mind, coming back to God's word, letting it stand over you. I don't know if you've ever seen a a skyscraper when they build them. If you've ever been around a building site or you've had the opportunity to see that, I always always go to these analogies because of architecture background. But if you've ever seen uh, a skyscraper that's like 100 stories, you know, when they build those buildings, they actually, the foundation goes down like five or six or seven stories into the ground. And the reason is, you think about it, you have a building that's 100 stories and a storm comes and the wind that blows and the force that's on it to keep that building standing, the foundation has to go so far down deep into the earth with great big steel beams and concrete and rebar and all the support that's there so that it can withstand that. And the same is true when we come to God's word and we think deeply about the way he's revealed himself to us. It gives us this firm foundation. It keeps us from being conformed to the world, but it helps us to be transformed into what God has for us. And I say all that because we're going back to the book of Romans. And so if you're with us last year, we spent six, almost seven months in Romans going through Romans chapter one through eight. And I would say to you, I think Romans is the greatest theological work ever written. And the depths of it and what Paul says and what God has revealed to us in it. And we spent a long time in that. But today we're going we're gonna, to uh, just touch on the beginning of Romans chapter 9. But as we step into Romans chapter 9, we kind of go into the, the deeper waters. Suddenly we're, we're getting to some heavy theological truths that are vitally important. But it takes thinking It's not just on the surface, but we need this in our world and in our lives. And so as we get into Romans chapter nine next week and the following week, we're going to gaze at the reality of God's sovereignty and what that means. And it's really good news, but it's also some difficult truths to wrestle with. But also as we as we do that, and as we get ready for that, what we're going to do today is we're going to do overview of Romans one to eight. And then we're just going to touch on the beginning of chapter nine and kind of set the table for the next few weeks. But it's important for us to kind of go back and make sure that we have Romans 1 through 8. Because as we think about this problem in our culture, this problem that springs in our own heart of self-righteousness, what Paul teaches us, what God's word teaches us in Romans all the way through is points us back to God's grace and his mercy and our desperate need for him in all things. And I would say to you, it's the self-righteous killer, the way he presents it. And so I want us to go back today, and we're going to start in Romans chapter 1. We're going to move quickly to it and get, to, get up to 9 today. But it will help uh, kind of ground us in the context of where we are when we get to Romans chapter 9. And so if you want to look with me in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to hit on some different verses as we go. I'll tell you where we are, but you may want to turn back to Romans chapter 1 as we begin. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome. And it's a church that he's not visited, but he's planning to come and visit. And part of his reasoning that we find out, I believe it's in chapter 15, is that he plans to go on to Spain. And he wants to continue the spread of the gospel. 
And he's telling them, I'm coming to you and I'm hoping you're going to support me and you'll help send me on. And he's kind of laying the groundwork for that. But you see in chapter 1 and verse 5, kind of big idea. He says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Right? And so Paul has been uh, received the grace of God. He is now an apostle. He has seen the risen Jesus. He has sent forth with this message. And he says, we're wanting to come so that we can... Uh, share the glory of Jesus to all nations. And it connects right back to where we were as we ended our series last week on our church covenant. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus in his last words to his disciples says, go make disciples of all nations. Paul says, that's what I'm doing. I'm coming to you with this grace and apostleship that all nations would hear. And I'm hoping you're going to send me on to go even further. And he says, the reason is, is that I have this universal truth that we all need to hear. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, every person on the planet needs to hear this truth of the gospel. And he's telling them that, and he's revealing that to them. We all need it. It's the only way that we can be righteous with God, that we can be set right with him. And so we get the summary statement of the book of Romans in in verses 16 and 17 there of chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is, is mighty and it's merciful to save and it's rooted in Jesus and what he's done and it's the power of God. The power of God for us in Jesus when we put our trust in him and what he's done. Because he says there, it is the righteousness of God and it's revealed From faith for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. The only way that we will ever be righteous is by faith. And then he's going to spend the next two chapters, verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3, telling you why that's the case. Why you can never ever save yourself. And what he's going to do is a kind of full-on assault on our self-righteousness. He's going to lay it out for us very clearly that none of us can do this on our own for two chapters. That we all need to be saved. That we're all, let's say the living Bible, we're all jacked up. We all desperately need God's grace. It's the antidote to that, thank God I'm not like those people. Because what Paul's going to say is, yeah, 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 you're not like those people. You just sin differently than they do. And he's going to lay it on us pretty hard that we'd understand the truth. And it starts there. And, and kind of what Paul's doing is like, uh, if, if you've been to a, you ever been to a jewelry store where they show you a diamond and they take out the black background and then they put the diamond on it? These two chapters are like, I'm going to show you your need. And then I'm going to get to the gospel and I'm going to lay it against this backdrop. And so what he does from verse 18 of chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he'll lay that out, and that's all of us. We've all ignored God and the world that he created. That is, we've sinned. Every single one of us. And he says, we've all suppressed the truth. And he'll go on to say, and we're without excuse. Because we see it in creation He says we see it in our conscience. Our conscience bears witness. We know that there are things that are right and are true, and yet we violate our own conscience, that we're made in God's image. And he builds this case that even if you didn't grow up 
religious or you didn't grow up as an Israelite or a Jew as Paul did with the oracles of God, you still have no excuse that every single one of us is sinful. None of us can be set right by our works. And he'll go on to make that case in chapter 2. He'll talk about the same is true if you're a Jew and you've grown up with all these things, that you get the law and you see these things, but you still don't keep them. It makes you aware that you've not done it. And he'll bring this to a head in chapter 3. And he'll say in chapter 3 in verse 9, we have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now remember, when he says Jews and Greeks, it's a way of saying everybody. Jews and non-Jews. All of us. We're all under sin. And then he'll unleash from verse 10 down to 19 this, this list of Old Testament uh, quotations. It's pretty hard to read as he just lays it out. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. And he just starts to go. And he gets down to verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3. And he says, now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Do you hear what he's saying? None of us can stand before a holy God based on what we do. And I want you to think about that for just a second. Think about it in our world and the things that we see in this kind of problem of Pharisees everywhere. Thank God I'm not like that person. Paul has just obliterated that argument. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one can stand before a holy God in and of himself and what we do. And he lays that out. And it's important that we start there. And it's important that Paul spends all, it's so important that he spends all this time in Romans. Two plus chapters to get to that point. Because the truth is, if we don't admit we have a problem, then we can't get the, the thing that fixes it. It's kind of like, uh, I read this this week. That right now, that uh, of all the people that are dealing with addiction in our country, only 5% will admit that they have a problem at any one given time. It's like 5.2% or something. And, and the point was, it's a friend that works with addictions ministry, was that they can't get help if they don't admit that there's a problem. And so Paul spends all this time to show us that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot do it. That we all have this problem. We all have this need that none of us is righteous. No, not one. And in order to see the glory of what he's now going to say that Jesus has done and what God has done for us, we have to come to that place. And so he does in verse 21 and following of chapter 3, the end of that chapter, he presents the gospel. He presents the good news of what Jesus has done. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You cannot be made righteous by what you do. You cannot make yourself self-righteous. It's not possible. It's insanity to even think that. But it can only happen. You can only be justified by grace as a gift. It's the only way that redemption happens. And I want you to think about that. It has to be received with humility. We talked about this as we walked through this passage back in the summer. And and I've been repeating it regularly. We get to a place of you have to transfer your trust from yourself and what you believe you can do to transfer your trust to Jesus and what he's done. 
You can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. And that's what he says. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so the gift of God's righteousness to sinners who trust in Jesus. And that's the good news because it's, it's in what Jesus has done. And then he'll go on to explain how that's the case and how it works and how that can be that God ordained Jesus to take our place. That when we put our faith in him and we transfer our trust to him, he bears the wrath of God that we deserve. Right? Remember verse 18 of chapter 1 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Well, Jesus comes and takes our place and takes that wrath for us. He allows him to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, he turns God from wrathful to now welcome us in because of what Jesus has done. And so he says that at the end of chapter 3. And he's pointing us to this beautiful picture. And so the death of Christ is the foundation of our justification. Our justification means that we are now right with God. And we can't do it, but Jesus has done it. But then he says this great thing, and say it's, again, it's the antidote to our problem of our culture, and it's in verse 27 of chapter 3. What becomes of our boasting? He says it is excluded. Because when you understand the gospel, you understand that all that you are and all that you have and all that you will ever be is due to Jesus doing for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. And it humbles us at the foot of the cross. Chapter 4, he goes back and he says it's always been this way. It's always been this way with God's people, that they're trusting in who God is and what he's going to do even in the Old Testament. And so he goes back and he points to Abraham. And he says, Abraham is saved by faith. And he tells you in chapter 4 in verse 3 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6 there. As God tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have all these descendants. And here's Abraham, this old man, looking at his old wife who's barren and going, there's no way we can do this in and of ourselves, so I'm going to have to trust that God can do it. And he transfers his trust from himself to who God is and what God can do. And God says he counts it to Abraham as righteousness. God makes him righteous by his doing because he's trusted in who God is and what he's doing. And you see that in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 5, the one who does not work but trusts him is the one who justifies the ungodly. He says, he justifies. It's not by your works, but it's by what God does. Right? But the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It doesn't mean that your life isn't changed by what Jesus has done for you. It doesn't mean there are things, marks in your life that you're beginning to follow him. But those works don't save you. Jesus saves you. It's his righteousness. And so you see that in chapter 4. Chapter 5, we get to the hope and security that comes in suffering and even death. That because of what Jesus has done and it rests with him, that we're good. That he's got us in all things. That we now have peace with God and God has got you. God has taken care of your greatest need. What can he not do? And so he gets to the second half of chapter 5 and he says, Just as sin came through one man in Adam, right, our common ancestor, and it spread to all men and all men of sin, and we all uh, are, are dying because of our sin. Jesus has come and now eternal life because of what Jesus has done. And he makes this comparison. 
between the universality of sin that is spread to all things to the glory of the grace of Jesus and how it conquers all things, right? Sin through Adam to all man, which leads to death, but through the grace of Jesus, we now have eternal life. He summarizes it this way at the end of chapter 5. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In chapter 6, he talks about that we're now a new creation. Beginning of chapter 6, we often use when we celebrate baptism together. Right? Paul anticipates that if it's all Jesus and it's all his righteousness and it's all grace, that in our sinfulness, in our flesh, we can kind of twist that to be, well, we should just sin more so that grace abounds. And he says, no, that can't be it because that's not who you are anymore. You are a new creation in Jesus. And you're raised to walk in this newness of life. We always say this as we we use that passage and look at that at baptism. You're a new creation. And so he calls us into this. That we're growing up into Christ. And in this process of dying to sin, how can you who died to sin still live in it? And so we're a new creation in what God has done for us. In chapter 7, he talks about how we're dead to sin and we're a new creation. But there's still this battle between our flesh and our spirit who we are in Christ, and we still struggle. We often want to go back to believing the lie that we're saved by what we do. Self-righteousness is so ingrained in our sinful nature that we want to go back to that. It's really about me and look at how good I'm doing. And, And then we stumble. And then we struggle. And if we go back to believing the lie that it's all me and what I do and then I sin, then all of a sudden there's just this, this uh, horror that comes Oh, no, how am I going to be saved? Because I'm a mess. And so, again, he, he points us back to that it's all Jesus and what he's done. And he's the one that, that saves us from this. And you get to the end of 7, as, as Paul's talking about uh, the battle that rages within us and going back to sin and struggling with it. And then he says, who can save us? It's Jesus. And then we turn the corner to chapter 8, which we spent a good six weeks on. I'll remind you, I think chapter 8, maybe it's the greatest book, greatest chapter in the Bible. The beauty and the glory of we are Christ and we are hid in him and he's got us. And, and chapter 8 begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he unfolds for you God's plans and how he's working, how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that he's got you, that he's going to bring all of it to completion, that he's going to use everything in your life ultimately for your good and your sanctification, and God has got you. And he brings it to this beautiful picture, and you get to the end, and he says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's the way eight ends. And so that brings us to our text this morning. And I'll just remind you, I say this from time to time, and I know you know this, but it's good for us to be reminded. We added chapters and verses. It helps us uh, reference and get to it and, hey, look at this verse and we can do that. But this is Paul's argument. There's not like a break between chapter 8 and then now we have a new chapter. He's still in the same argument, although he's kind of shifting gears. It comes right on the heels of chapter 8 and everything he said. And so when he talks about nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes into this thing talking about this uh, 
heartache that he has for his fellow Israelites that don't know Jesus. And so listen to what he says. Read it with me again there. Beginning of chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. I want to stop there. And I want you to think about what he's saying. He's talking about that God had chosen these people to show the world what he's like. He chose Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then he's going to bless this nation. and He's going to give them the law and the prophets and the sacrifices and the temple and all these ways to show the world what God is like. But yet a large number of them have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so he's just spent all this time in chapter 8 talking about nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And God is in control and he's got all these things and he's bringing it to fruition. And then all of a sudden he's anticipating his audience. It may not be what we immediately think of in our culture today. It might not be the first place we go, but a lot of his audience would have been thinking, but what about all these Jews that have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And he says it's not as if God's, the word of God has failed. He says it hasn't failed. God is completely sovereign and control over all of this. But then he tells us and he points to, he says, uh, it's not as if the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because of they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offsprings. So what is he saying? Not all of Israel is Israel, but it's the children of the promise, not just the physical in the line. And he makes a distinction between true Israel and all of Israel. And what he's pointing us to and what he's talking about is the Israel that is not the true Israel is the ones that are counting ethnicity and nationality and their good works as the way that they're going to be saved. Right? John the Baptist will come and preach very directly to this. You think you're saved because your father is Abraham. God can raise up uh, rocks that will cry out his name right now. You are not saved by your nationality. You're not saved by your lineage. You're not saved by your good works. Jesus will talk directly to this over and over again. I mean, think about the story I talked about right at the beginning in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee, the religious leader, the Jew of Jews that's been doing all these things. And he says, who is the one that goes home uh, justified? The tax collector who's saying, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And what Paul's bringing through all of this is the true Israel. It's the ones that are just like Abraham that place their trust in God and what he was going to do. They transferred their trust from themselves to who God is and what he's going to do. And he's showing you it's always that way. And so within Israel, there was a remnant that was truly trusting in God. And they weren't banking on, well, I'm an Israelite. 
They weren't banking on, God, I'm glad I'm not like those people over there. They were banking on that it's, G, it's the, God himself is going to do this work and I'm putting my trust in him. I'm transferring my trust from myself to who God is and what he's done. And he makes that distinction. He's, he's going to bring that together right even at the end of this chapter. And, and we'll get to this. But he says in, in verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And so the true Israel are those that put their faith in God. They, put, they transfer their trust from themselves. It's not about their nationality. It's not about their works, but it's about God, the one who saves. And that's always what God was doing with Israel And so he's bringing us back to this idea over and over and over again that our only hope is putting our trust in God and in his mercy and his alone. But then what he's going to do in this is he unfolds this chapter, and we're going to get to this next week, and I'll just kind of set the table as we go into chapter 9. He's going to say God is sovereign over those that come to faith, that God is the one who chooses, and that our faith rests in God's sovereign choice. And as I say that, and as you come up against the things and the arguments of the way he lays it out here, this is not an easy chapter. There's a lot of things that spring up and you go, wait a second, how does that work? And how is that fair? And how does God do that? And so I just want to ask this question and we'll end here. Kind of plant the seed and then we'll come back to it next week. But when you start to think about that your entire life is hid in putting your trust in God and who he is. So how do you see how you came to faith? Is that your doing, my faith, right? God extends grace and mercy in Jesus, but the faith is mine. Or is the faith itself a gift of God? Your ability to believe a gift of God. And I think Paul's going to say, All of it is a gift of God, that it all rests with his sovereign choice. And when that's the case, what it does is it puts us in a place of, I have nowhere to go except it's all God. It's all him in everything. It cuts off any part of me that goes, look at what I have done. Say, look at what I've done. I have received the mercy of God and it is not my own doing. And it points us back to it's all him. In every way. It cuts off that self-righteousness before it ever begins. That it's all what God has done. And so we live in a world right now that desperately needs the humility that comes with the gospel. And I would just say to you, when we go deep into God's word and we, we, we dig deep down and our foundation is strengthened, where it leaves us is a place of humble thankfulness. If we understand the gospel and who God is, and what he's done, it should leave us at a place where we're the most humble people on earth. As soon as it starts to bubble up in us, I'm glad I'm not, uh, that's not true. It's all God's doing. And so I pray as we spend time in Romans together and we wrestle with these deeper issues and these things that we come out on the other side, overwhelmed by God's mercy, that we see so clearly that it's all his doing. 
So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you that you love us and that you pursue us, that it's your mercy to us, that all that we have and all that we are relies on you who speaks creation into existence, that holds us in existence by the power of your word, that it's your grace given to us, that the only righteousness that will ever bring us to stand before you is because of what you've done and you've given to us. Remind us of this truth. I pray that you would continue to do your work in us that would bring us to a place of just continued, humble gratitude, overwhelmed by your grace and mercy to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.